Tomorrow Unlocked brings you Fast Forward. Presented by Ken Hollings. Program 5. Are you are, or have you ever been? There is a future that we think we know already. One that seems as safe as yesterday. It lies somewhere between what we know and what we can imagine. Between the limits of today and the possibilities of tomorrow. But this future has a hidden dimension, a mysterious secret area that we like to call the past. Years ago, the typical workplace sounded like this. You always knew when you were at work because you had to shout just to make yourself heard over the sounds made by machines. Nowadays, the typical workplace tends to sound like this. In offices and factories, the machines have grown quieter and more graceful as they take on even more of the workload. The automated workspaces of tomorrow will be quieter still as desks go paper-free and robots finally take over entire assembly lines. 100 years ago, a new play by the young Czech playwright Karol Čapek offered a frightening vision of what the future of work might be like and in the process introduced audiences around the world to a word they had never heard before. Robot. In Czech, it means hard work or forced labor. And Čapek used it to describe a new type of worker. RUR, or Rossum's Universal Robots, to give the play its full title, imagines a global workforce of scientifically engineered humanoids of flesh and blood. The sole purpose of their existence is to serve humanity's every need, taking over all of their jobs until there is nothing for people to do. Realising how utterly useless and unnecessary human beings have become, the robots rise up against them. It does not end well. Chapek's robots look like us and are about the same size as us, so they can fit effortlessly into our factories and offices. The first robotic arms introduced by General Motors to their car assembly lines in the early 1960s were also designed to have the same reach as a human worker so that they could operate in the same space. By then, however, leading cybernetician Norbert Wiener had predicted that the real power of the automatic machine was not going to reside solely in its ability to pick and lift heavy things, but in the vast tides of information it could process. This would inevitably affect the whole nature of work and what it meant. At the same time, the cultural myth of the productive machine that walks and talks and looks like a human has persisted. Utopian fantasies still linger about its impact upon our lives. We shall have to find ways of training ourselves how to enjoy the leisure that we presumably are going to have, the greater leisure that we're going to have, in such a way that instead of being frustrating and making life perpetual boredom, will enable us to engage in creative activity. AI and robotics have continued to redefine our conception of work. But how are they influencing our behavior? 
Have we adapted to automated machines better than they have adapted to us? And what are the advantages and drawbacks of their presence in the workplace? Dr. Beth Singler is a research fellow in artificial intelligence at the University of Cambridge, England. For many people, the common conception of how AI will work in the workplace is as a physical form, the assumption about physical labour and the replacement of humans in physical activities and tasks. But actually, the reality we're seeing is this transition more to knowledge labour and even emotional labour, AI taking on tasks that primarily have been the result of human thinking and human intelligence. And we're trying to see now how we can still fit into a society where that knowledge labour is being taken over by artificial intelligence and what that kind of workplace looks like where the more elementary tasks of thinking as well as physical tasks are taken over. What we're increasingly seeing is interfaces with AI that present simulations of emotional results and responses. So for instance, AI assistants, they do tasks for you, but they also present the format of that task in an emotionally accessible way, with pleasantries, with civility, with language. So it's not simply that purely intellectual tasks will be taken possibly by AI, but also that our ability to connect with other human beings will be influenced by how AI is implemented in the workplace. We're definitely seeing this human-machine interactions playing out in lots of different locations. So in the home, in the workplace, the role of emotional assistance in the care environment as well. So we're increasingly having to come up with an understanding of what that relationship looks like, how we might teach our children to negotiate those relationships. There's lots of accounts of children interacting with AI assistants in the home place and whether or not there's discussion of whether or not they should be polite to AI assistants. We're kind of coming up with a new social format for these more regular interactions with AI. Should we be civil? What kind of responses should we expect? If we say rude or sexist things to a female AI assistant, does that matter? These questions come out again and again. I'm an anthropologist, which means I study what humans do and think. But I think certainly these large questions are so unavoidably integral to our conception of what AI is and could be, that you can't have a conversation about AI without them coming up. The man-machine combination will find a dividing line passing gradually from man over to machine, the machine taking more and more of the burden as we learn how to use the machines, as the machines become more powerful, and we will find ourselves left in the more creative aspects of the problem, deciding what it is worth attacking, what are the problems which we wish to solve. These kind of questions we do not know how to give the computer and seem best reserved for man at present. Certainly my work around engaging with the public and seeing their sometimes hopeful responses, sometimes very fearful responses, shows that this is going to be a part of our discourse for a fair period of time. And when it comes to the future of work, I think this is another specific topic that really gets down to those big philosophical questions of what is the human being for? If we define ourselves in terms of what we do and what we produce, we then necessarily have these sort of fears of replacement and concerns about them. We see examples of AI standing in between 
humans in conversation. So there's uh, machine learning algorithms employed to give you suggestions on how to respond to emails and warning you in some cases that your response is too harsh or too stern in tone. So a kind of tone gatekeeper, that kind of taking on the middle ground or the middle role, the gatekeeper role between humans and their interactions to soften some of these edges of our interactions at work is very developing space. One specific application I saw a while back now was for divorced or divorcing couples to make sure that conversations could be amicable, hopefully for the benefit of any children involved. But yes, again, this sort of tone policing through a machine learning algorithm that pauses and warns you, perhaps you're being a bit sarcastic there. What I would like people to think around with questions of the future of work and our relationship with AI in the workplace is how much do we change and shift our behaviour because these systems aren't as general as we assume them to be, that if we perhaps place too much trust in the systems, we then curtail our normal human messiness. Anthropologists are quite keen on studying the difficulties of messiness of humans that we don't interact in purely rational ways. If we have to curtail those elements, what is lost as we not anthropomorphize the AI, but robomorphize the human and actually make us limited in some ways if we force ourselves to smile more often to do well in an interview that's got facial recognition software running in the background do we end up being a simulation of a human as much as ai is increasingly seen as a simulation of the human as well in other words is ai becoming more human or are humans becoming more machine-like in the workplace the issue of adaptability between humans and AI systems has grown increasingly complex, particularly when robots and other autonomous machines are involved. If an automatic machine behaves like a human being, should we treat it like one? And how far should that go? Are we more likely to let down our guard when there are machines around than we are with other people? It's time for us to glide over to the safety zone. The Safety Zone with David M. Principal Security Researcher at Kaspersky. We did some research at Kaspersky along with the University of Ghent, particularly trying to find out how people in a workplace environment would react to robots. For example, if they would let it follow them through a security door. 40% of people unlocked the door and kept it open for a robot to enter. And when they positioned the robot as a pizza delivery person, then the staff didn't even question why it needed access to get into a secure area. That may be more to do with the fact that it's delivering pizza, but actually the general issue here was that this machine was accepted in a way perhaps that an individual wouldn't be. And that was perhaps because they weren't perceiving that they were dealing with something that was humanoid, actually. Interesting to find out that actually a robot will be able to gather data items at a rate of about one per minute without being stopped. So I think there are situations where the fact that it's perhaps non-humanoid robot might actually be a benefit in terms of putting us off our guard and, and making us more likely to share information that we shouldn't or giving it access that we shouldn't. But I think there are other situations perhaps where having a humanoid robot would make us feel more comfortable. Fast Forward is brought to you by Tomorrow Unlocked, the cyber culture channel from Kaspersky. 
fast forward, looking at tomorrow through the rear view mirror. A deeper understanding of how people and machines interact with one another can clearly contribute to more effective workplace practices, both in terms of better security and more ethical behaviour. But how far can we trust a machine's judgment, and what safeguards should we have in place? Alan Winfield is Professor of Robot Ethics in the Bristol Robotics Lab, the largest academic centre for robotics research in the UK. One of his current projects is the development of an ethical black box for robots. The ethical black box really is technologically not very exciting. It's just the robot equivalent of a flight data recorder for aircraft, or indeed an event data recorder that are typically fitted in not all, but some vehicles. And the thinking behind it is very simple, which is that not just if, but when there are accidents, we simply will not be able to investigate them and therefore figure out what went wrong and make sure it doesn't happen again unless we have that data. So our contention, this is, I say our, this is Marina Jurotka and I, my collaborator in this particular project, is that it's vital, essential, that all robots should be fitted with the equivalent of a flight data recorder. We call it an ethical black box, simply so that we can log, record what the robot is doing, its sensory inputs, its outputs, the decisions that it's making, up to, of course, the point at which the accident occurred and, and quite likely beyond that point as well, so that an accident investigator can figure out what went wrong. Very few robots right now, especially in the real world, learn at all. You know, machine learning is something that really is at the moment quite restricted. They do not answer all the old questions, but because the questions are new, the answers are also new and very exciting. There is a strong tendency to speak of the machine as solving the problem, when in fact, really it is the program which describes to the machine what the machine is to do. This is overlooked, and I think a great deal of confusion arises from this. It is not that we do not have adequate machines to solve our problems many times, but rather we lack adequate descriptions of how to solve the problem. As well as being a, a professional engineer, I'm a kind of amateur evolutionary biologist. So I'm particularly interested in how we can use robots to model little bits of natural evolution. And that gives me an opportunity to tell you a little bit about a wonderful project led from the University of York with the University of Napier and also the Free University of Amsterdam. So the four universities are working on a project called Autonomous Robot Evolution. And what we're doing is we're trying to do evolution of robots in real time and real space. And we've built, in fact, we have two of these machines, one in York and one in my lab in Bristol, a RoboFab, which is basically a bunch of robots that make a robot. And, you know, by analogy, they're birthing the robot. I, I don't really like to use the word birth, but there will be parent robots and the genetic material of the parent robots will be combined in some way to produce the genetic material for a, a child robot. And that child robot is literally made in this RoboFab. We're particularly interested in 
the dynamics of brain-body coevolution, which is a fascinating aspect of natural evolution, which is barely understood. It's so exciting to be part of. Trying to look at both the engineering questions of how we can breed, and I think that is the right word to use, breed robots, because we're essentially breeding robots in the same way that farmers have selected crops or animals over many, many centuries. So we're breeding robots. Can we breed robots for particular environments, like a planetary environment, where you don't know what you're going to find when you land on the planet? Extreme environments, unknown environments, or changing environments. So that's the engineering ambition. Then there's a scientific ambition, which is to try and understand aspects of natural evolution with these simple robot models. One hundred years ago, according to Carol Chapek's play R.U.R., robots were produced by their thousands in huge factories. They were engineered not to care about anything but work. The work, they believed, must go on, even at the expense of the entire human race. Fast forward to a time when automated machines can start to influence each other's development. What are the ethical implications of this new means of production? The principal ethical dimension, I think, is ensuring that this is a process that cannot continue in a runaway fashion. And one of the great things about the RoboFab is it's a fixed infrastructure and the robots cannot breed without it. It has limited materials, it has limited time and energy, and so you cannot have runaway evolution, which I think would be an ethical concern. While we do indeed already share a lot of our time and space with robots on an almost daily basis, it's still up to us to determine what that time and space will be. Ethical issues will play an increasingly important role in how we make these choices. Robots already perform specific tasks within the human workspace, and soon they will be helping us to breed other robots to work in environments where humans cannot survive, such as the bottom of the sea, a heavily contaminated site, or even an unexplored world. If this is happening today, then it's the business of the future to understand it as quickly and as completely as we possibly can. Carol Chapek's RUR didn't only show us the great potential of robot workers and what they might achieve, but also how we can share the world responsibly with them. You have been listening to Fast Forward. Production and sound design were by Simon James. Music by Simon James and Max de Wardner. Production coordination was by Curtis James. You also heard the voices of my special guests, Dr. Beth Singler, Professor Alan Winfield, and David M. Historical voices, courtesy of the Prelinger Archive. My name is Ken Hollings, and I have been your presenter. This has been a Sounds Fancy production. Further episodes of Fast Forward are available on all podcast channels. Fast Forward is brought to you by Tomorrow Unlocked. For more information about this series and other thought-provoking stories of how technology is helping us to create a better future, visit TomorrowUnlocked.com by Kaspersky, cybersecurity to help bring on the future.
Hello everybody, it's Jeff here from Kaspersky. Hope you enjoyed listening to Fast Forward. If you like audio series about technology, you'll love our podcast, the Kaspersky Transatlantic Cable Podcast. If interested, search for Kaspersky Podcast or Transatlantic Cable Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.